the Bitterfly Podcast. Knowledge is food, bitches. Eat up. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Bitterfly with me, your host, Emily Altobley. And this week, we're talking to my day one homie G's, best buddies ever, my brothers from other mothers, Brian Langdahl and Adam Johnson. Hello. Hey, hey, what's up? Thanks for having us, Emily. <laughs> Can you guys believe that we're doing this? Like, yeah. these two, you guys, if you're listening, these two had to listen to me talk for, like, years about wanting to start a podcast. Like, late nights, stoned as hell, just talking about, like, different titles it could be, or, like, different concepts. Like, I think my first iteration of the idea was, like, stoners and cars, and that was totally just based off of you and I, like, all three of us, you guys, getting high in cars talking about some weird shit and being like wouldn't this be so fun if we recorded that conversation like damn we should have done that (laughs) well years later here we are I guess right here we are except we're talking about (laughs) some actual cool shit so (laughs) we're talking about cool shit back then this is a little bit cooler cooler. so these are the men that told me in 2017 to buy a bitcoin and I was like sure and at that time it was like what a grand for a bitcoin Uh, I think it was about three Okay, it was still like very, very small in comparison. And I remember being like, no, I'll next year, the year after. And now fucking look like as of right now, today, how much is a Bitcoin worth? Uh, I think today it was about 38,000. Okay, so it's down because like in the last few months it hit like 60, right? Yeah, 64, Mm -hmm. I think close. (laughs) So you guys, today we're talking about money. Because I feel like crypto has been on everybody's radar and I keep running, like I myself don't know much about it. I would say I keep running into like people that are like, yeah, what's that? Like the, the term's just been floating around, but not a lot of people know like what it actually is. So we're talking about money today. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, a lot of people try to understand cryptocurrencies from their general original understanding of what money is, which in most people's cases, isn't a lot, right? I mean, yeah. what do you what are you taught in school about what money actually is, right? Um, nothing. And, you know, I mean, whether there's a purpose for that or not, I don't know. But most people have a very basic, limited understanding of what money is. Mm-hmm. And so I think to, to fully understand cryptocurrencies, you have to break down your assumptions about money and kind of start from scratch right something that i always point people to whenever they're like what the hell is cryptocurrency i'm like look just watch this ted talk (laughs) please just watch this ted talk it's literally 15 minutes and then we'll talk after but she lays like such a great foundation this woman her name is neha narula her ted talk is called the future of money and she's a digital currency researcher you can find this online anywhere and she tells this story about this group of people called the yap And they live in like Micronesia, kind of like over by like Southeast Asia. And they have a really interesting way of using money. They have giant limestones called rye stones. And instead of the way that we transfer money, you know, like I throw you a buck, you throw me a buck, you Venmo me, whatever. They just keep track of who owns what of these giant rhinestones. And it's super interesting because it's like it's this economy based on like trust and transparency like everybody Mm -hmm. knows who owns what of the limestone 
And there was this one instance where a rhinestone fell into the water and these sailors like returned home and explained what happened. And the society basically decided as a whole, we know that limestone existed, even though it's at the bottom of the ocean, we're still going to count it as like a valid form of currency. Um, and so everybody agreed that the people that own that stone still had that stone. Um, and it's really interesting. I think it's super applicable to cryptocurrency because it's not physical money. Um, and so, yeah, she, that's like the first thing that she kind of explains about it. And then like goes on to like say a bunch of other stuff, check it out. But yeah, as a jumping off point, like let's go, let's go farther out. What is money you guys? Yeah, I've, I've, I've done a lot of research on like what money actually is, right? Because like I was never taught growing up, this is what money is. I was just told by my parents, save as much as you can, put it in the bank, hold on to it until, right? In case there's an emergency or in case you need it or you're ready to buy a house or whatever. Right, like you're going to get a job and then they're going to pay you and that's right. how you get your money. Yeah. Right, and so you you use your time to get dollars right essentially is how people are taught money works um, but essentially money is strictly a tool right that's all it's it's used for uh, and, and, and here's an example of this so if you go back far enough to like pre-civilization uh, right essentially you have cavemen that are hunting farming right not you know not necessarily farming but gathering right and you have these people that are totally interspersed right they're they're spread out right, on the globe. As more and more people start to become, right, in smaller areas, right, more and more people are born and they start to become smaller in these areas, we have civilizations being born. When these civilizations are being born, how do I know if my chicken that I'm going to give you is worth a house? How do I know that my house is worth, right, is it worth a gallon of water? Is it worth a cow? Is it worth, right, there's no set standard for back conversion. in those days. Yeah, for, or they, they didn't even have an idea. Yeah. yeah. So all essentially all they realized was what it became was gift giving and reciprocity. So it was, I, I feel that I owe this person something, but I don't know necessarily what I owe them, what the value of what I owe them is, right? And vice versa. I don't know what people owe me because I have no set standard. To value things within my society. So as people realized that they needed something to agree upon, they found things like uh, in early civilization, it was shells, right? In Asia, they used shells that they found on the beach and that became their standard of currency, right? One shell was worth X in their economy. And it became this exchange of, right? basic trinkets that were easy to come by. Um, what's interesting is that randomly you see this yap type of society where they do have one standard thing, but it's not in small things that I can exchange readily with anyone, right? And so I, I, we should come back to that, but it's, it's something to remember because that's not a normal way of society to value things. Generally, it became what is the lowest common denominator? What is the most valuable thing in our society that we can easily break down? Right. You right. give me so, an apple and I give you an orange or something. Right. But it's like, but, yeah, how do we? It's like this collective story we tell each other about value. So how yes. do we decide those things? 
And so, yeah, so for an example, right, like an apple for an orange, there's no set comparison of what each one of those is valued. We just assume they have a similar value, mm. right? But as we see time go on, right, in like ancient Greece and Rome, fish oil, garum, uh, was very valuable to them because it was used to uh, give flavor to their foods, right? Back in the, now we wouldn't think anything of it, but back then that was huge. Or like right? salt, same kind of thing. It was used exactly. as a preservative tool. It's it's something of high value. It has value within. Society. So it yep. ends up becoming just a transaction of value. And it has yes. to be like a socially agreed upon one though. That's, that's the key factor in that. Correct. Because I could value the show, but to you, it doesn't mean anything. So it has to be. Right. Like that's the thing that's the thing different. about money is so subjective to well a person and that, that bring, or that this culture up, <laughs> that brings up a fantastic point because like in asia they were using shells for a long time right but then in europe they were using something else and then in india they were using something else right and it became this issue as these individual societies got larger and started interacting with each other their individual standards of currency, right? Their individual standards of valuing things in their society didn't necessarily mesh with these other societies that they were trying to get involved with or trade with, mm -hmm. right? And so then we saw in like Syria now, but back then it, it was essentially, uh, it was a different country. And what we saw was they started using metals in the form of just coins, but there was no face on it. There was no, there wasn't like a, a person established to it. There was no rulers stamped into the coin. It was people decided that they needed something of better value. So they began using essentially just gold or silver or whatever metal they had circles in set standards, right? Set sizes. And I should clarify that took a while for them to figure out, right? We're talking like hundreds of years, right? One society starts using it. Another society realizes that that has value. So they begin trading with this, right? And it slowly spread from there. A lot of it was due to conquest and war and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. But eventually one leader realized, okay, not only does this thing have value for our society, but I can stamp my face on it and show that our country has power, that I am a powerful person because my face is on our currency, right? And so then it became not only a tool for people, individuals to use, it became a political power tool, right? So more people are using my currency, therefore our country is more valuable. We have more power than your country, right? And so we kind of see these other important things try to creep in right political power all these other things more than just person to person usability right inherently money the usability is i can transact with you and we both agree on a set value to that thing but over time we see it starts to incorporate political power and, and these other issues and that's kind of where we see ourselves today um, and before, before I like get into that, I guess I want to say there's nothing wrong with that system, but for the last thousand plus years, we've basically been operating within the system of a government provides the standard of currency for their people, right? Whether that be 
gold, which it was for a, a very long time. Or now what we see is fiat currencies, which is a monetary system that is not backed by a hard physical asset like gold or silver, right? And so we kind of see this progression if we take a step back of shells to coins, right? To coins with stamp like faces on them to now we see bank accounts. We've got paper money. We've got paper money and this paper <laughs> money is not backed by anything except it is backed by the government that decides what value. That value is worth. Right. Yeah. Uh, and this is where we really get into essentially like the, the speed of this technology has been increasing for the last 50 and 100 years, right? We went from backed by gold, at least in the US and other countries as well, but in the US, we'll use as an example. In the US, we were backed by gold until I believe it was the 50s. And the government decided nobody can own gold. No US person can own gold because it's valuable and we need it. So they started taking all the gold from people. And at that time, they decided we're going to take all the gold and we're going to separate the US dollar from that gold backing. And so now we just have a dollar that's essentially built on the goodwill and the trust that people have for that currency, mm -hmm. right? People and the, the government has told us it's worth this value and people believe it. So we use it to transact, right? Um, and really from that point on is when we see technology really increase, right? Like as we've given governments the total control over that currency, they're very inclined to keep that currency in check but also the government that has the best technology is going to win, right? The political power that has the best currency is going to win. So then we saw, right, the rise of digital banking. Recently, we've seen credit and debit cards, right, which just add ease to your transactions. It's not doing anything different. Mm -hmm. You're still you're no longer up. giving somebody like a paper dollar bill. You're giving them just a swipe of a credit card. Right. Right. And yeah. yeah, and you're still using money, you're moving money from point A to point B, but it's making that process faster and more efficient and therefore cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody involved is incentivized for these things to get more technologically advanced, right? Yeah, I was going to say like now where we're at with money, like in 2021 here, it's interesting because like I get paid digitally via direct deposit. Yep. Then I Venmo my landlord, my rent, yep. then, you know, a certain percentage of my paycheck goes into my IRA. Like I do my taxes online. Literally all of this is like, I'm not touching the money. It's, it's right. paperless. It's electronic. I'm not yep. even seeing it. I'm just, it's essentially just ones and zeros yep. in a computer. Um, and so that's like, basically what leads us to cryptocurrency, right? Like it's already digital. It's already like, I'm not possessing well, the actual money. Well, so, okay. So let's take a step back here. So I agree with you. You're not actually physically handling any money, but from the concept of the government or from the person receiving said money, whether it's digital or physical in the system that we've built, you are handling that money. It may be in the form of zeros and ones, 
but in our society, it still represents a value. Mm -hmm. So you are handling the money, right? It's just money that's on a ledger in a bank somewhere. It's not necessarily physically in your house, under your mattress, or in your closet. Instead of like moving yeah. an actual amount of stones or shells, you yep. just you now have the technology to put that online and do online banking and you know right. transact with credit cards and all that or Venmo, same thing. The drawback yeah. to the digital money with me having to go through an institution like a bank, though, is that. I give my money to a bank and they say, we'll hold it here for you. This is yours. And, you know, I log online and I see my, my account total and I'm like, that's my money. But there's all these like roadblocks. If I ever wanted to like take all that money out, say one day I'm like, yeah, I would like my $25,000 back. I can't get it. The bank has loaned my money to other people to do other things. So it's not really mine. Like it is, but it's not. And that's why I think cryptocurrency is really interesting um, because there it doesn't have that in institution roadblock. Like there's no gatekeeper, essentially. Right. Like it's my money. I can put it in, take it out, grow it, whatever, as I want to. And we right. can get like more into that. But I was going to say like, and for the banks too, like they, sh- they technically have laws that say they shouldn't be able to keep your money. But you're also relying on that and the laws to back you and say, yes, I do actually own this money. I want to take it out. Right. Isn't it? I've had issues with transferring stuff in and out of accounts before. And I won't name who it was, but there are certain (laughs) spots that I've had money in that I can't get for like 12 days. It's like, well, either you don't have the money or you don't want to move it. Well, so what we're talking about, though, is the trust inherent in the system that we all come to appreciate because we were born into it, right? So if you break it down, really, the only reason that we trust these institutions is because we were told to trust these institutions and they're backed by our government, right? right? Like when you put money in a bank, it's FDIC insured, right? That just means that up to a certain dollar amount, if you lose your money and it's not your fault, the government will reimburse you for a set amount. That's only valid while that government is an operational and functional government, right? Like, I mean, we look at like Venezuela or Greece or whatever, and you see like these intense levels of hyperinflation. The government can't back anything in those situations because they don't have it. Yeah. And they can't print enough money to get that out to people. Right. Like they can't create more value, which isn't really creating value, but we can get to that later. Mm -hmm. But they're not able to print that specific dollar bill for that person or whatever the yen or whatever they're transacting in yeah that's something that neha narula in her ted talk which i mentioned previously she describes this friction it's like there's all these barriers like you know sometimes you go to a restaurant or store they don't accept your credit card because of the fees you know the merchant doesn't want to pay or you know sometimes it can be hard to like transfer money across borders like to like switch up like and convert currencies all of those things keep us from being able to like go about and freely live our lives and spend the money that we used with our time to make and earn. Yeah. So here, I mean, yeah, just to kind of put it into perspective. So to like bring it back to what we were talking about a little bit ago. So like back in the day, if I found a seashell in Asia and that had a set value, I could trade with anybody that I found. I wouldn't have to go through any intermediary. 
I wouldn't have to talk to the government. There's nobody in the town square like waiting to exchange these currencies between two people because there's no system more than just, I give you this, you give me that, right? We're talking back in the day. Mm -hmm. With fiat, we don't see that anymore because yes, as the world has become more connected, right, via the internet, I can send money to anybody. The problem is I have to get the okay from my banking institution. I have to get the okay from my government, right? It has to then process through whatever government I'm trying to send to or right, whatever government the, the person is, is in that I'm trying to send to and then go through that person's bank and then it reaches that person, mm-hmm. right? So when you're talking about all these problems, essentially it comes from <clears throat> not having a simple person-to-person relationship for that money to travel. And it seems simple because I can push a button on my bank account and sure, like it will eventually get to the person I want it to go to, you know, if it's not flagged for fraud or for whatever, right? It but might not be the same amount though, because of all the fees. Right. And there's <laughs> a lot of fees, but yeah, it costs a lot of money in our current system to send payments internationally, but that's mm-hmm. primarily because of all these, these different hoops that people have to jump through that they don't realize they have to jump through, mm-hmm. right? It's just built into the current system. Right. Right. And I mean, that's a, a perfect segue because right it was it was almost easier back when it was person to person trading a coin or person to person trading a a shell or whatever it was the only problem was distance was a huge factor right i couldn't trade with somebody in europe if i'm in asia just because right you're going to have to travel 2 months in order to go to that person make the trade and travel back what we see today is we can communicate with anyone at any time via Facebook, right? Email, whatever, whatever the platform is. The tickety talk. The tickety talk, sure, yeah. But we can't send money to whoever we want. That's a flaw in our current system. We can, but there's all these loopholes and hoops built into the system. And it makes no sense. It really makes no sense why it's right. so hard. Well, so that's the thing do that. that it does because when you think about how much power there is behind having these currencies, right? Why is the US the the global leader, right? Because we have the the most valuable currency. Other people base the value of their currencies on the value of our currency. Yeah, Um, Brian, what do you think about, like there's still seems like these days, like Adam's saying, we can send money so quickly depending on the route it takes. But it's like in terms of growing your money at all, right? Like if you were going to use a brokerage account, trade stocks, whatever it is, let's say in the stock market, um, there's still a lot of barriers, right? Like how do we get around those? What are they, I guess? I mean, it's a lot of it like institutions too. Like you still have to have a bank account for any of that stuff. Like you can't just go to TD Ameritrade or Robinhood and say, hey, I got 20 bucks in cash, you know, here take my money. You have to go through a bank account and you have to do all this verification that yes, I am me. And that also ties into like the government stuff. Like they want to make sure they get the taxes off of that. So you have to go through them and then you can transact. But I don't know. It's, there's a lot of barriers in the middle. It's, it's very similar to just the regular banking system. Right. I feel like they are purposely like you guys are saying the systems designed to make it difficult in the same way that they write laws to be like very confusing. 
you know, they're like designed for like most people not to understand. And I actually saw this crazy article the other day that was saying um, a disgustingly large percentage of Americans can't read above like an eighth grade reading level, but news articles are written at like an 11th grade. And so literally there is a large chunk of people that like can't even understand like enough to like differentiate between information and make their own opinion based on fact. So yeah, like we're, we're in a confusingly purposeful system with money. And financial literacy is something that over my time of like looking and like doing financial stuff, like with my own bank account or, you know, like crypto or whatever, it's like, there's a lot of people that don't have any financial literacy a lot of people get their first thing in like college when they take like an accounting course. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there should be basics. I think personally in like junior high and high school, like teach kids like, Oh, this is how a credit card works. This is what credit actually is. You know, this is, this is inflation. I had somebody that I was talking to, they asked me a question and they were like, Oh, I put my money into here and it makes me like 2% a year. And I was like, you're losing money. Because inflation is higher than that. And they just had no idea that was even a thing. They didn't even know what inflation was. And inflation is just over time, like, you you print more money, the value of that specific dollar bill gets a little bit less. It's like, instead of, you know, a dollar, it's 98 cents or something, yeah, you know, for yeah. example. And they didn't even know that was a thing. And I had to, like, literally teach them that, yes, this is a thing. And it happens all the time. And if you don't catch up to that percentage, you're still losing money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had an old roommate that put all his cash in a, a safe, never put it in, didn't even hold it in a bank. So he wasn't even making that, you know, 0.1% or whatever it was. It was like, man, you gotta, yeah, your money's not working for you. That's, that's kind of how I explained it to him is like, you can allow yourself to put this out there and make, you know, hopefully a good percentage, but at least it's working for you. Mm-hmm. And you can also do your regular job and make money on top of that. Disclaimer, but, everyone no. that's listening, this is not financial advice. We're not financial advisors. I just need to say that we are just <laughs> I, I theorizing agree. about money. But I was going to say one thing I learned recently is that like, I had an IRA, I had X amount of money in there, and I wasn't investing it. So it was just sitting there. And it was not, it was not growing at all. I was making like 50 cents on it a year or some shit. I don't even know. Um, but I was like, oh, nobody taught me that I have to take that money in that IRA and then invest it into the stock market. Otherwise, like it will be that same amount in 50 years. Like what the fuck? There, there's all these steps and stuff. So let's move into, um, I don't know which one of you, who wants to <laughs> broadly define cryptocurrencies as if the person listening has literally no idea what that is. Okay. This is cryptocurrency for dummies, butterfly edition. Should we talk about like how cryptocurrency started? Yes. That's a great place to start. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can tackle that. So essentially the idea for a cryptocurrency has been around since the late 1990s, early two thousands, right? Like with the idea of digital money. What do you mean by that? (laughs) <laughs> so essentially what you have is like when the internet was born. Excuse right? me, sir. Thank you. You're going to have to go very, very okay. basic here. Okay. Very okay. basic. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. So when the internet was born, people needed a way to pay each other, right? They realized that. Yes. When I can communicate with people, eventually they realized, oh, I could probably pay that person. Okay. Wait, right. can I stop you right there? Do you remember when our parents were like so sketched out? They're like, no, I don't want to put my credit card online. 
like what is PayPal? At least my parents, they were like so sketched out about being hacked and what anyways, yeah. go on. So yeah, yeah mom, we needed to pay. Until recently. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so right, it it it's it, it makes sense, right? People started realizing I can communicate with anybody. Oh, okay, like maybe I should be able to pay anybody. Yeah. So logically that makes sense, right? We didn't actually see a cryptocurrency until a lot of these pieces, right? These programming pieces right like things on the back end of the internet you would say so initially i'm just going through my institution to pay online well yeah yeah so okay yes you're going through your institution but you're still writing checks you're still like paying people mm -hmm. and then right eventually we saw things like paypal right mm -hmm. and and these other things like online then, banking became a thing and that made it easy that took down right. the barrier of having to write a check to somebody right but that's what, wild to me we just started being able to scan our checks and deposit straight into our account like right in the well, old days even, we used to go to the atm or the bank within 20 like 20 years ago you couldn't pay somebody online hmm. yeah it wasn't an option you no. couldn't do it right okay so what's the first like onset crypto okay. well, story so that's the thing so essentially we have this idea of people realizing okay we should be able to pay online and we have paypal what people then started realizing was we should have some form of payment system that all happens online. But there was no infrastructure, there was no back end to support that. It was just some idea that people had, right? We should have this thing. Uh, but nobody was really working on it. It wasn't like a, uh, and there's like CIA documents and stuff saying that like if this were to happen, it would be a huge problem potentially because it would be a power move. But anyways, like I, I digress. So the concept though has been around for a while during the run-up of 2007, when the housing market was going crazy, we have a guy named Satoshi Nakamoto. He began work on what was essentially the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Really, it involves multiple different components of computer programming all put into one. So these components were around for a while, but he was the first person to put all these components together. What are the components? Break it down. Well, so, okay. So first of all, though, we have in 2007, he came up with this idea and started working with these people online anonymously, but he was working with people on chat forums and stuff. So he didn't code everything. Other people came in and helped him, though they didn't know who he was. In 2008, he released the Bitcoin white paper which essentially detailed um, what his vision for Bitcoin was. And you can still find that Bitcoin white paper on Bitcoin.org. Uh, and I recommend reading it because it, it is fascinating and it gives a pretty good idea, although technical, it gives a pretty good idea of what the original concept was for cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. um, and at heart, essentially, it was a peer-to-peer -peer payment network. I can pay anybody, they can pay me. But so he released the white paper and then in 2009, right? So not long after the housing market crash, the first Bitcoin was mined. And that was done by Satoshi Nakamoto on his own computers. Can I sidebar for a second? Yeah. I feel like, I don't know if we've like articulated this yet, but the peer-to-peer -peer thing is important because, well, really anything related to the government, taxes, like just you wanting to like have your own fucking business to yourself. like. Yeah. When I go through a bank, the bank knows who I paid, who paid me, 
how much I made that year. Right. And it's just a lot of like noise. And so the peer-to-peer thing is nice because it's like, if I'm paying Brian for something and he's paying Adam, like, I don't need to know about what goes on between you two. You know, Adam doesn't need to know that I paid Brian for whatever, like, and big brother doesn't need to know that any of us paid each other for anything right. like on, Ven- or on venmo when you like send somebody something you're like hey i don't want anybody to see how much it's i sent so weird. it's moving to that <laughs> you know? and it breaks so, down the institutions if you go peer-to-peer you don't have those roadblocks like we we're talking about earlier there's a number it's of good directly reasons. from me to you yeah. you send but me, i mean you send me your address for whatever i send it back to you and we're good because this really gets into what cryptocurrencies are and what the purpose is for them Right. I'm right. sidebarring. Continue. Sorry. The first no, okay. Bitcoin is so, born on what day of what uh, year? Is anyone right high now. right now? I'm not high right now. No. Do you ever get nervous? Uh, I just have ADHD. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Go. <laughs> so first Bitcoin was essentially mined in 2009. And we can talk about what that means. But for the first couple months, like Satoshi was doing all of this by himself on his computer. Right. We assume it was at his computer at his house. But nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Because yeah, is he a real person? Like, I yes. feel like this is. Um, so, some a people myth. believe that he was a group of people that was funded by some sort of government. Uh, a, a lot of people, my, I put myself in this category. I believe it was one person operating under the belief that this would be a huge benefit for mankind. And that was the sole purpose of doing it. He hit a button once the, all the code was wrote, was written for Bitcoin. He hit a button and it began the process of the Bitcoin blockchain, which and is the transactional re- network. Yeah, let's talk about blockchain. Break okay. it down. What what is blockchain and why is it a safer method for transactions? To understand what the blockchain is, you have to understand kind of how payments work. Right. So in the current system, we have debits and credits. I pay you and I am credited. My account is credited for a negative balance Mm -hmm. and you are paid. So you get a positive balance, a debit. And that's how our entire financial system works. Mm -hmm. What Satoshi built was a ledger that does all of that aggregating of transfers, right? Debits and credits automatically. No banking system needs to be in the middle. No person needs to account for those. It's all done by the code that was written. It comes down to if somebody sends something and somebody receives it, that's automatically logged on the Bitcoin ledger. For everyone to see. Right. So what the the Bitcoin... That's the key piece here is decentralization. Right. There's no one person. There's no one person that's keeping track of the ledger you know, the, the Ted talk that you, you showed, mm-hmm. it's essentially like a piece of paper, right? It's a digital piece of paper, but this piece of paper can be downloaded by anybody. And if I make a change to that piece of paper, it changes the piece of paper that everybody in the world has. It's essentially like a, a Google doc, yes, like whoever, exactly. everyone it's- has access to it. And when I make a change, it changes for everyone. That's like a really great way to understand it, right? It's like we all have like pieces of paper and when I write something, it shows up on Brian's as well. Yes. Like simplistically, that's the blockchain ledger. Yes. The the interesting thing to remember though, because that's a perfect analogy for it. Anybody can change anything. The interesting thing to remember though, that's different about blockchain 
is that there's a validation process for any information that gets posted onto it. If I wanted to go into your Google Doc and make a change, I could do that, but that change has to be validated by people that are running the Bitcoin network. Any changes to that piece of paper have to be validated by all these people around the world. So you can right. think of it like an auditor going through payroll or looking at the till of the register and just making sure that all the money is accounted for and that everything Correct. adds up. With okay. multiple people, it's not just that yes. one person. That's right. saying, oh yeah, I agree with this. This is. I'm trying to simplify it though. Right. So right. it's it's mm -hmm. a shit ton of people. Everybody's making sure that everybody's like staying honest, basically. Yes. In the same totally. tone as the Google Docs page, it's almost like a Wikipedia page with the validation aspect of that because anybody can put whatever on a Wikipedia page. Like I can go change whatever, but there are mods that like validate that's correct info. And there's people that can change that too if it's incorrect. So it's kind of like that in the validation stage where someone can make a transaction and not everyone agrees with it, so it won't become a thing. It's just no longer part of that blockchain. Like it's it's not a transaction that technically happened. Okay. And so let's talk about mining. How does mining play into the maintenance of the blockchain or, or the creation of Bitcoin? Like how does this all work together? You say you have a million people operating off of this page, right? The Bitcoin network. And say there's 10,000 transactions that happened in the last two hours, right? So like I sent you money, you sent Brian money, Brian sent his mom money, his mom sent so-and-so money, right? All of those transactions are pushed onto essentially a block. And that block is then validated by miners. So all of those transactions that enter into this space have to then be validated by people that are actively running Bitcoin code. And so those are the miners. Basically, mining means that you are maintaining, auditing, making sure that the blockchain is correct. Yes. And, exactly. so, as, and so as you validate the transactions that have already happened, that process is creating more Bitcoin to be created and put in circulation. Is that how it works? So it's, a, it's a reward system because... To expect people to like run a PC and, and run the blockchain network just on their PC for no reason. And that's not theoretically it should work, but it's not really gonna work because people so are, big cost. they like self so they get a reward out of that. You're They're the person that actually helps. Exactly. You're incentivized to actually run this and continue to run it and help to validate and keep that blockchain moving. Interesting. Along. So the miners are being incentivized to just maintain the blockchain exactly that's exactly this is a is. really efficient closed loop huh. well yeah i mean you don't need banks you don't need governments you don't need people right you need computers to validate the system and computers can work all the time right there's no there's an energy cost to the work that's being produced by computers right mm -hmm. they're taking x amount of energy and using it to validate these Bitcoin blocks. But you don't need a teller that's working eight to five to validate that your transaction was, was good, right? You don't need a government to verify, oh yeah, this is cleared by the IRS, so we're gonna go ahead and push that through, mm -hmm. right? There's none of that. You either have the Bitcoin in your account and can send it, 
or you do not. Uh, and that's all validated by the, the system itself, right? By this mm -hmm. system of miners, by the blockchain itself. So it's a totally enclosed loop. And that's what makes it strong, right? But not only that, you have this system of security built into it, right? There's a reason they call it the blockchain, right? So like, as you have like 10,000 transactions pushed onto a block, that block is validated. But the next block is built into the security of that previous block. So in order to hack the blockchain, you would have to hack every single block prior to that block you're trying to hack right that specific group of transactions mm -hmm. and there's just no computer in the world that has the capability to do that i have right? heard, that, that, I've heard okay, that someday so, that might be the case yes. but there might be a, a computer that could do that but for now they're just not correct mm -hmm. so yeah you okay. would need quantum computing um which essentially is like a computer can say well because normally the way a computer runs is like an object is either yes or it's no, right? It's either a zero or a one. With a quantum computer, you have, it can be both zero and one, and it runs all of these potential possibilities simultaneously. And in a system like that, the blockchain could essentially be broken. Mm -hmm. But in a world like that, we might develop a quantum blockchain is not hackable by a quantum computer right like that's when you get into like yeah. all these technologies that are coming in the future that so wait nobody, i'm gonna stop knows. you as far as hacking the blockchain goes yeah. let me see if i understand this right if i wanted to go into brian's bitcoin account and steal all his money i can't do that unless i hack where he got it from and where that person who paid him got it from Not and i would necessarily. have would i have to go all the way back through the blockchain no. to figure out where it originated in the system so to clarify so, there's two different things we're talking about right we're talking about like changing the blockchain and you're also talking about like taking my money like my bitcoin they're two separate I wanna, okay i want to talk about the security of of why someone can't just steal your money right because this happens mm -hmm. all the time people's they log into something wrong on their computer, the whole bank account gets wiped out, whatever, they give their credentials right. to the wrong person. Yeah. I can't steal money from Brian unless I find where else it's been, right? In the Bitcoin system. Mm, so no, so that's kind of what Brian what? means. Like, okay, what so- What makes it safe, I guess? Okay, so hacking the blockchain would be like hacking Bank of America. Exactly. Right? Like you're, exactly. you would be hacking like an institution. Bitcoin, the network itself is an institution and Bank of America is totally hackable, right? Like if I had enough money, enough resources, enough time, I could hack their network, take the money from every single person and move it into my account. To right. do that with the Bitcoin blockchain itself, the network with the computing systems out now, it's entirely impossible. No computer has that amount of power because like we're saying, you would have to not only hack the individual block that was just mined, but you would have to hack every single block that has ever happened since 2009, right? You would have to corrupt the Bitcoin blockchain in its entirety because each block is built upon the security of the last one. Okay. Right? And this is very simplified. 
just going to clarify what Adam was talking about for the like security of the blockchain. The reason why it's so hard to do that is because the second that that block gets mined, it gets published. That information along with the blocks below it or before it gets published to every computer around the world that, that runs that blockchain. Millions of computers. Exactly. It depends on you know what cryptocurrency you're using and what blockchain you're on. But the majority of it have a lot of computing power behind them. It's a lot of different computers. The reason that that validation works so well is because that to make like a fake transaction or steal money off of there, you have to convince every computer on that network that your transaction is the correct one. So you'd have to literally make a connection to every computer around the world that ran that and tell it, no, you're wrong. Let me change this. Well, technically you'd have to do 51%. Well, Right. technically yes yeah but you just have yeah, to have I mean, the majority vote on that subject correct on that transaction and that's why it's so difficult and that's why adam was saying that we probably will have to get to something like a quantum computer before we can get to that or just have somebody that has 51 percent of the power Ownership on the bitcoin right exactly Interesting. They, yeah. and that won't happen ever so if i want to be a miner yeah. And I don't want to buy my Bitcoin. I want to work for it. Yeah. How do how do you how does one get into being a Bitcoin miner? Like so you have to have a, like a there's not a job it, application. This is a decentralized right, right. cryptocurrency. Like what? Do, <laughs> well, first of all, mining used to be a great way to gain Bitcoin. Now yeah. you basically have to be a professional miner to do it. Oh. Well, and the reason is is because the calculations that these these miners right essentially in order to validate these blocks they're running intense computer codes there's like a certain code basically that that block is saying this somebody has to return this specific whether it's like a 64 or 128 character which could be like numbers and letters and symbols they have to return that back that person validated it and gets the rewards right so you have to have something like a really, really high scale computer or like that's why like I don't know if you know, but like graphics cards went up for computers when mining became a huge thing because that was the easiest way and it was the most powerful mm -hmm. component you can use to help validate that. So you have to have some backing behind it. Like you have to you know, have like a computer that can run it. There's a bunch of different ways that you can technically mine for mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies and it's dependent on the currency itself. Okay. For Bitcoin, you have to actually have like a physical mining right. computer. And then okay. you have well, so a network. He, he touched on something. So yeah, you essentially have Bitcoin operates on proof of work, right? Like computers are doing these intense calculations in order to validate these Bitcoin blocks. That's what we call proof of work, right? The computer is doing the work to validate and you get rewarded for that work. But then you have like other possibilities like Ethereum has like proof of stake, which is totally different. And we don't have to get into that. But if you want to mine Bitcoin right now, you need a lot of money or you need to essentially know people and get involved with those people in order to be able to make it worth it. Yeah. Right? So, so they have like big, huge uh, mining facilities that are like miles long now that are just sitting cranking out computations for Bitcoin. The average person, right? So like you, me, whatever, you would want to essentially stake your coins. And 
what staking essentially is, is giving your coins to somebody that operates a Bitcoin node and they valid, they use your Bitcoin to validate transactions Interesting. and you can get currency like Bitcoin from that. Uh, okay. Like so a Bitcoin in, pool, basically. Like, yeah, I just looked up the first one that popped up was slush pool is one of the first, you basically, what Adam's saying, you can put all your money into um, like helping certain people mine and they'll give you percentages of the rewards depending on, you know, what you guys agree to. But that is a way that, you know, the layman can get into it. Like, I know I don't have a PC that can run like a mining rig. So if I wanted to, I could put my money or my Bitcoin into a pool like this. And you'll still get some reward out of doing that. So you don't I have to go, buy that huge rig though. I want to go farther out because we skipped over this because I wanted you guys to first explain like how, why blockchain is attractive as like, it's a safer place for your money um, than regular banking mm -hmm. central system. Um, but where does the value in cryptocurrency come from, right? Because like Bitcoin, for example, he didn't just make a bunch of Bitcoin, whoever that person was, and say like, this is how much it's worth in the same way that a government will decide how much value a piece of money has. So where does the value come from and why is it fluctuating? Well, I mean, in a sense, he did set a value to it. Um, I mean, the market has since determined what the value is, right? 38,000. But when Satoshi coded the first Bitcoin, um, essentially he set one Satoshi is worth 0 0.00000001 Bitcoin. And that was his value. That was his standard value. And I think at the time it, it fluctuated between like zero and one cent or something or one and like two Like a tenth cent. of a cent for a while. For one yeah. Satoshi. In like a US, US dollars. Correct. In comparison okay. to US dollars. Okay. Um, but I mean, that's hard because there was no, there was no reason for transacting this. So there is no value, right? He was mining it on his computer and that was it. It was just a computer program sitting on his computer. Well, there was nothing to mine until people start buying into the crypto with well, real money and converting that value into crypto. Well, yes and no. Bitcoin Where is does it originate? Because Okay, so when Satoshi started mining, he was having to send transactions back and forth to himself in order to give that validation and that, right, get those verifications and have those blocks being set. He was doing all of that himself. But if there's no product being exchanged, there's no value there. So he just established the network with 0 0.000001 Bitcoin is one Satoshi. Mm -hmm. And over time, as more people got involved and people started wanting it or playing with it, I mean, originally it was people in their basements that were like, oh, this is kind of cool, mm -hmm. right? But over time, you slowly found that it had value to people. And at first it was people, like I said, in their basements, right? So you could buy, you know, one pizza for 80,000 Bitcoin, right? Because it was pennies. Um, and, and there's, you know, instances of that happening, um, you know, but really your question is hard to explain because there's no value if people don't want it, right? Much like the U.S. dollar. If nobody wanted the U.S. dollar tomorrow, the value would go to zero. 
I was going to bring up those rice stones too, because that's very similar in the way that it started. It, there wasn't any value behind that stone. We just, they just as a society were like, oh yeah, this actually makes sense that this is our store of value. Yeah. Right. It's now just it's a becoming limestone. more and more like a little right. stone could have bought you a piece of bread and then, you know, more people want, it's a supply and demand sort of situation. Like when right. Bitcoin started, there was a bunch of supply, but no demand for it. That's why it was that 10th of a cent or zero cent. Like it wasn't worth anything. Well, and it and only had value. It only had value to the people in that tiny little group of right computer mm-hmm. people, right? That that's what they 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 knew that environment, right? They were coders. They were programmers. They were right, like cypherpunks or whatever. I love the story. I forgot how much that guy had, but he just like jokingly bought like a pizza before Bitcoin took off. What did he have? Like thousands of Bitcoin. Oh, no, he, he spent s- over eighty thousand Bitcoin on, on one pizza as a joke, and it's like, fuck! How much money would that be worth today? How oh, millions? <laughs> how many millions and millions? Back when it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. I have a cousin who mined yeah. over five hundred Bitcoin on his grandma's computer back in like two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, and uh, you know he 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 moved out for a while and found out in 2015 what the price of bitcoin was and went back to go claim it and uh, his grandma had thrown the computer in the dump so i can tell you right now where this computer is as far as like what dump it is right but the cost of getting that out of the dump is pretty high right finding it doing all that so he knows where it is he just hasn't got (laughs) oh yeah but that's to you, dig through two tons of garbage to get to it. But, but this is a that's a very common thing. There's many people around the world right now that know where their Bitcoin is, what landfill it is, or wherever, but they can't access it because it was yeah. on that computer. So know? what do I need? I'm kind of talk technical about how it works, but if I want to not get into mining, but I want to get into owning cryptocurrency, we're not giving financial advice. We're not saying, I know you guys own cryptocurrency. Don't tell us. We don't want to know. But how do we, how do I buy it? Where do I get started? Like, what are the apps? I know people have like physical hard drives. I don't know, like a USB or like, like how, what do I need to keep it safe once I have it? Well, it starts with having a wallet. That's the main keys. You have to have some place to keep it. It's kind of like your physical wallet that you have, you know, in your back pocket or something. Like you have your credit card and you got your dollar bills in there. So you have to, there's certain, there's a bunch of different ways you can make a wallet, whether it's through like a a website somewhere or, you know, you can download software that helps you create wallets and it gives you an address and you have to buy it from somewhere. But that's the, that's the starting point. You have to have some place to keep that. Uh, so it's a digital wallet. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it's very similar to having a bank account. Exactly. Okay. You go on to whatever platform it is, um, right? Whether it be like Kraken or Coinbase. I log in or, with like my email and my password. Yeah, you set up an wallet. account, and and in a lot of a lot of them now, you have to have like a driver's license and and all these things to to prove who you are. But there's still quite a few where you don't need that, um, and it's up to you what you choose to do right but okay um, because i've heard there are like hard wallets and soft wallets like brian what you're describing where i go on a website or an application of some kind and i like keep it there like that's the location um that's like a soft wallet right and then a hard wallet would be like i've got a hard drive in the 
you know, drawer of my computer desk and I, I plug in and that's like where I keep my money. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, is that, which is, which is well, safer so in crypto. It's kind of different in crypto. You have what are called hot wallets and cold wallets. It's a like an online wallet. offline situation. Correct. So an, a hot uh, wallet is one that where you store it and that application is always connected to the internet. Like, for example, Coinbase, if you went on, it's like one of the most popular websites that you can buy cryptocurrencies from. Mm -hmm. When you open an account, they make a wallet for that specific, like that specific coin. And that's going to be online all the time because that's run off of their servers and whatnot. So it's always online. Right. A cold wallet is something that has no access to the Internet. You're storing it offline. Essentially, what this means is the, the, the risks with storing something in a hot wallet are that it can be hacked. If somebody gets my account information, they can log into that account and take it. Don't able love to, that. That's right. Sketch. Well, it's able to be exchanged at any moment, which is the benefit. I can log into my Coinbase right now and trade money within three seconds. And that's a benefit. A cold wallet you keep offline. And so you have to then get into that account, transfer it into a hot wallet, or connect to that cold wallet onto the internet. And then you're able to trade your currency. So there's not the same amount of speed attached to it, but it's much more secure because somebody has to get into your cold wallet. Have the password. Yeah. Cold wallets, though, the interesting thing is they come in a lot of different forms. Like with cryptocurrencies, you can store your cryptocurrencies in like a, well, an offline cold wallet, which is essentially a platform that holds it for you that is not connected to the internet but you have in cryptocurrencies you have what are called public and private keys so a public key is much like your bank account routing number you can give that to people and they can send you money your private key is essentially like your password to get into your bank account right so you have your public key and your private key you never want to give your private key to anybody because that's what allows access into your cryptocurrency account you can essentially have a cold wallet and leave it forever and just have these uh, access keys, right? Public and private access keys. And that's it. That's your money. It's on a piece of paper, public mm-hmm. and private, right? And so was... somebody else knows that key, it's yours. It's no one else can get into it. But it's weird because like you can literally store your entire net worth on a piece of paper with a few characters on it. That's so interesting. This brings me to my next point. There's all these stories of people who like have a cold wallet, but they lost the password or like, Mm -hmm. like they're missing some critical piece of accessing their account. Do you guys have any specific funny stories of people who are like millionaires with their Bitcoin, but they can't get it because they don't know the passcode? Not personally for me. I don't know anybody. That's that's got that, but kind of sad. I would look up. Uh, <laughs> that's hella the unfortunate. Uh, the whole Craig Wright thing. So Craig Wright uh, is arguing in court that he was like the creator of Bitcoin or whatever, and is, you know, he's entitled to billions of dollars in cryptocurrencies, but he doesn't actually have access to the accounts. Okay, so, so... He's suing in. <laughs> Everybody knows what the public key is. I can go on and see anybody's public key if they send me money. Yeah. I can see your public key. It's like your bank account. So he is claiming in court that he's a creator of Bitcoin and he is entitled to this money, but he can't validate that he is Satoshi. And 
he's not he's an asshole but whatever He's, he's someone who's trying to get money for something he didn't do. And it's okay. billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, no, there's so many people that have made it big off of cryptocurrencies. We, I mean, it's like impossible to have this conversation without mentioning Bitcoin. But there's a lot of other cryptocurrencies, Absolutely. too. There's yeah. no way they're all going to last. I will say, usability-wise, cryptocurrencies are uh, way beyond the current system of transacting. There's no comparison. In order to send $50 million in today's system, right, using banks and governments, it may cost me 15% or 5%, but 5% of $50 million is still $2.5 million, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of money. Yeah. Whereas like in crypto, somebody sent like a billion dollars the other day for like a couple hundred bucks. And so they didn't have to go through a bank. They didn't have to go through a government. And within, you know, I think like two days, it was in the other person's account without having to jump through all those hoops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's nice to see like the friction subsiding, at least with cryptocurrencies, like the fact that you can send it immediately and there are no fees and it doesn't matter what country you live in, like right. that money will work for you. Governments may start to have a problem with this ease of use. If you or I or whoever is able to send money to anybody in the world, why do I need to claim that through my government? My country doesn't get to tax it if I'm just doing this on crypto. Yeah. A lot of these applications like Coinbase or whatever, you do have to link, uh, not all of them. Institutionalized. The the more institutionalized ones, yeah, you have to register a bank account. You have to put your like uh, driver's license on. And that is a governmental control, right? The government wants to know who's sending money in and out of their country. And for the last couple of years, it's basically been the Wild West, right? Like anybody could do anything with cryptos. And now they're starting to get more regulation on it. Precedents are being set. Precedents There's are incremental changes that are happening to the financial laws. You now have However, to claim this or you don't have to claim that. Well, you didn't have to before. It's exciting to see like that cryptocurrencies are kind of pushing like the rigid system that we discussed in the beginning of this episode and all the like barriers to entry of people Mm -hmm. receiving money and sending money and not falling away, but I guess having to adjust to this new world where people are saying like, we don't have to put up with this bullshit anymore. Like, fuck you. (laughs) Well, and here's a, so here's, here's a, say when Bitcoin was $3,000, I bought 10 Bitcoin, right? I had 30,000, I bought 10 Bitcoin. As long as I haven't sold that Bitcoin, how does the government know that I didn't lose access to my private key, right? They don't. There's no way of verifying until you send that crypto, right? Or validate or or whatever. Spend that money, yeah. As far as the government knows, like any cryptocurrencies I bought in the last year, I don't have access to anymore. They don't necessarily, they can't prove that or not until I send it. Where that gets interesting is like, say, tomorrow I move to like Puerto Rico, just as an example, right? Because okay. Puerto Rico doesn't have any capital gains tax. Oh, I see. I see where you're going. Right. With this. So, as far as the government knows, I lost all my Bitcoin. I move to Puerto Rico and then I buy Bitcoin when I get there. That Bitcoin is no longer taxable. We're in this weird stage of like, yeah, everything's getting easier for. like me and you and the average person but governments can't really do much about it you know and that's where we get into this very strange gray area that we're kind of entering 
power is going from these governments that have had it for so long back into the hands of the people. Decentralization. Um, so yeah, I'd like exactly. to ask you guys to end this uh, cryptocurrency for dummies, butterfly edition episode. Where do you see the future of money going? I mean, well, it's pretty, it hasn't been like a linear path. I mean, up until recently, I mean, credit cards 30 years ago weren't really a thing. It was, I mean, we're talking about earlier from shelves to coins, from coins to coins to faces, from coins to faces to physical money and all the way through. I think this might be like the first iteration of like a legitimately decentralized currency. And we'll see something in the future, I'm assuming it's going to be like a upgrade from this. Maybe it's like, uh, you know, before cars, when we were in like horse-drawn carriages, like maybe that's cryptocurrency today and soon, yep. you know, we will be seeing cars. Very likely. Yeah. I mean, that's personally, I think there's going to be something that comes along that's that Bitcoin breaker. And it's like, oh, now this is the new next thing, you know, we're going to, and it'll probably utilize some of the same aspects that like your blockchain does, Yeah. you know, the decentralized aspect of it. And, and moving it more to peer-to-peer where you don't have the institutions and it's, it's an ease of use thing. That's, mm-hmm. that's where I think it's going to end up. So to kind of put it into perspective, right? Like back in the day, they were mining gold, for example, with picks, right? And shovels and shit. Today, how do they mine gold, <laughs> right? Like they use giant backhoes and they have these big like processing plants, right? And they have all this technology. We're essentially seeing the exact same thing, but played out with currency, Mm -hmm. right? The old system is us using mines and picks and right. We have like the government, which is our, you know, like the person directing everybody, like you go work here and you go work there and all these things. But now we have access to all these tools that can mine gold more efficiently or mine the money more efficiently. And we don't necessarily need people to tell us where to dig or what to do. And so I completely agree with Brian that like Bitcoin is the big thing for right now. And honestly, Ethereum is super usable when it comes to like industry. It's got a whole bunch of use cases, but we may see something that becomes better. This whole thing is one giant test. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's a big experiment, right? It's never happened before. In all of human history, the thing that has the better technology wins, period. End of story. It saves money. It saves time. Mm -hmm. People prefer it. And at this point, cryptocurrencies are the better technology. And so will that technology probably morph and adapt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The human condition is to just keep on improving. Progress is inevitable. (laughs) Absolutely. And we might as well jump on that train right don't be afraid of change because life is change right so you yeah. might as well embrace it and move forward totally um, so if anyone was listening to this episode and they were like if we piqued your interests at all and you like want to jump more into learning about cryptocurrency do you guys have any resource suggestions um i mentioned everyone you have to if you're interested go watch the ted talk called the future of money which i refer to many times in this episode by neha narula um and then what do you guys suggest for people who maybe want to learn more more technical side there's like adam was saying white papers i mean that's if you want to get into like the nitty-gritty of stuff um i utilize something that's called investopedia 
there's a lot of information out there. The biggest thing for me, I think, as far as people that want to learn more, is that approach it as something that you you'll probably never fully understand, right? Don't let it overwhelm you, right? Because like I don't I don't fully understand like the uh, technical. Extremely true. A lot of people get overwhelmed when they start to think about money or cryptos or whatever. Yeah. But the only thing you can do is take it one one step at a time, right? Does this make sense? Does it not? Do I agree with this? Do I not? Um, well, that's the thing is like, you don't have to understand it to get involved, to start right. learning about it. And also like, sorry guys, money runs the fucking world. Like I, I know people try to like hide from it and they're like scared and they want to like avoid it and just not think about it. Like, no get educated it's all just food bitches right i mean if you want like specifics for bitcoin okay so uh, if you're like a poor person though and you're like mm, thirty-eight thousand dollars for a bitcoin probably mm, not into it fair. what else like where can i find just general information what the fuck cryptocurrency is so i know they have I, things on coinbase that they have like a like a earn section you can have an account i think you have to have an account to do these they they basically have sponsorships from the coins and they say here let's make a quick video to kind of explain what's going on with these guys like you know there's one for specific coins and you can earn some of that and it'll give you like a brief rundown of it mm-hmm. um but yeah it's there's no like real repository for like right. specific information it, it's kind of like a patchwork where you have to figure out certain things yeah and i would honestly start with like the stock market and banking systems if you really want to get in depth on stuff like that, I would start with those because that's the basis for everything that the blockchain is built upon. Right. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about today is based off of put some money into the stock market or put $10 into crypto. I think the biggest impediments people have are one, I don't have any money, so it's not worth learning it. Or mm-hmm. two, it's super overwhelming. I don't understand it. Nobody's ever taught me anything about it. Or I don't have the time to understand it. Yeah, so I'm yeah. not even going to start. And I think the biggest thing that people need to realize is like, one, nobody fully understands this space unless like absolutely experts because it's new yeah. to everyone. It's yeah. right. It's, it's, it's literally a brand new thing in the world. Right. Um, but don't be scared of things that are new. Right. Everybody's going through that same process. So it's not like it, you know, you're the only person going through it. I mean, yeah. And the, the other thing that I would say is that you don't need $38,000 to get started right? Like that's just what one Bitcoin is worth. You can yeah. buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can spend $10. You can spend $20. You can get started anywhere. If you're willing to learn, it doesn't matter if there's a repository for all the information or not. Like go out, read about it, start to you know spend 10, 10 minutes a day. I firmly believe it has changed the world already and it will continue to change the world. And anybody that learns about it now is just that far beyond anybody that's going to learn about it in a year or five years or 10 years or that was hella inspiring thanks <laughs> yeah well thanks for being on guys i learned a lot about bitcoin and blockchain ledger that wasn't very clear to me before i still feel like i know nothing but i know a little bit more than i did before and that's what bitterflies <laughs> out here trying to achieve every week so Thank you, my brothers from Other Mothers. Um, We'll definitely talk to you guys again. Um, Maybe get like a little more nuanced into the topic of crypto and specific coins. Um, But I just wanted to like give everyone like a basic, you know, crypto for dummies. Thanks for being on. And uh, we'll be back next week with more Bitterfly.